Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode of For Real is brought to you by Book Riot's Read Harder 2020 Challenge. Book Riot's annual challenge is back. Once again, Read Harder 2020 has 24 tasks designed to help you break out of your reading bubble and expand your worldview through books. With new genres, new authors, and new points of view, the challenge will, hopefully, help you discover amazing books you wouldn't have otherwise picked up. Read a historical fiction that's not about World War II, a retelling of a classic or fairy tale, horror from indie presses, and more in this year's challenge. Go to bookriot.com slash readharder to get the full challenge task list and to check out the prizing for those who complete the challenge with a bonus prize this year. Welcome to For Real, a bi-weekly non-fiction books podcast that puts the spotlight on books that tell it like it is. Or try to. We'll cover new releases, backlist finds, and more. For Real is a Book Riot podcast and is hosted by me, Alice Burton, and fellow rioter Kim Yukura. We're recording on Thursday, January 16th. Hello, Kim. Hello, Alice. How are you today? Um, I am swell. How are you doing? I am also doing pretty good, although it is very cold in Minnesota and we're supposed to get a giant snowstorm tomorrow, so I'm a little dreading all of those things. I mean, you know, it's January. I feel like that makes sense. Yeah. Um, We were talking right before the podcast about our January reading, which mm-hmm. uh, which makes sense, right? It's a nonfiction books podcast. Let's <laughs> chat about books just all the time. Uh, so... I know you were saying you had a bit of a slow start. Maybe if you had participated in my mini-thon last Saturday, that would have helped. I know. I know. It looks so fun. For those listening, I hosted a mini-readathon because uh, my beloved 24 in 48 readathon is um, at least – in like on hiatus right now it's unclear whether they're going to do it again which is a huge bummer but um so i like to do mini readathons because i do not have the patience to read for 24 hours so these usually last six to eight hours and i i hosted one online on saturday and it was good i got through like some comics and i finished a book Uh, i read like various numbers of pages and other books but go mini thons that does sound great. Yeah, I have finished one book so far this year, uh, which is, um, yeah, I don't know why. Like, it's just super slow. Although I guess part of the reason is the, the first fiction book I picked up for the year is like this 550-page doorstopper that's just taking me forever to get through. So I have read like 300 pages of that book, which is the equivalent of a book. There's just 200 more pages to finish. Do you want to do you want to name what book that is? Because I'm interested. Oh yeah, yeah. So it is called "The Most Fun We Ever Had" by Claire Lombardo, uh, and it is great, and I really like it. Um, and I think maybe like so I have um Monday this coming Monday, so Monday before the podcast comes out off from work because it's MLK Junior Day. Um, so I think I might finish it then, hopefully. 
But the book I did finish is nonfiction, and I'm going to talk about it later, so that's exciting. Oh, great. Yeah. Gosh, I was looking at my fiction from last year, and in terms of literary fiction that takes place in, like, the last hundred years, like, literary fiction written in the last, let's say, 15 years, right? Mm-hmm. I read, except for my book club, I read none, which I was wow. extremely surprised by. But, yeah, it's pretty much all nonfiction, middle grade, book club books the end yeah yeah this one is like it's a really it's one of those just like big epic family sagas but i it's the family's really fascinating and then it goes back and forth in time between like the present and then when the parents kind of first met and like we're having the kids and stuff like that so you're getting like the history of the family while you're also getting kind of all of these like contemporary problems that they're having uh and it's super good uh but just real long interesting yeah. All right. So uh, before we get into uh, the podcast, we will go and mention our first sponsor. So this week's episode is sponsored by Fights by Joel Christian Gill from Oni Press. Uh, propelled into a world filled with uncertainty and desperation, young Joel is pushed towards using violence to solve his problems by everything and everyone around him. But fighting doesn't always yield the best results for a confused and sensitive kid who yearns for a better, more fulfilling life than the one he was born into. Uh, and Joel learns this in a series of brutal conflicts that eventually lead him to question everything he has learned about what it truly means to fight for one's life. So Fights is a harrowing coming-of-age memoir uh, chronicling Joel Christian Gill's childhood and adolescence in the 1980s. And um, so the memoir version follows his younger years. Uh, the graphic novel is geared towards older readers, so adults and mature teens. And so that book is Joel Christian Gill's memoir, fights one boy's triumph over violence and it's available now from oni press all right and so with that i'm um, gonna do some nonfiction news because i actually think this one's really uh kind of exciting so uh the news story that i brought for this week is from um well it's, it's from a bunch of places but the story we'll link to is from the hill and it is about how stacy abrams who uh, is a, a black woman who ran for governor in georgia and lost uh, in a race that was very close and also uh, rather controversial. Um, she is going to be writing a book focusing on voting rights. Um, so the book is called Our Time is Now, Power, Purpose, and the Fight for a Fair America, and it's going to be out in June 2020. Uh, and it's going to be about her race for governor in Georgia, kind of what she learned from that. Um, and now she apparently um, runs a nonprofit um, that is focused on voting rights. Uh, and so she's going to talk about her work with Fair Fight um, and how she's going to um, – the book will serve, uh, the article says, as a blueprint for the changes that she is calling for related to voting rights. So um, I'm super excited about this one. I think Stacey Abrams is a fascinating lady. Um, like, she was just such a – cool candidate in Georgia and I think there's a lot of um, hope that she's going to like be candidate again potentially Um, but just like that she's working on voting rights especially coming into the current election cycle I think is really going to be neat so uh, I'm going to be looking forward to that book um, okay, so my I had two initial thoughts the first was oh my gosh that's so amazing Stacey Abrams has a book coming out my second thought was I do not like political memoirs because Mm, I feel like obviously any nonfiction reread anything is not going to have the absolute truth you can't do it it's impossible so with that in mind though political memoirs inherently have to have so much bias and to be so filtered especially if the person is still in politics and you're right and they don't want to like talk about things that might jeopardize that and so I just uh I'm usually 
very hesitant to read them. I am more likely to read Stacey Abrams' book than I would say like the average political memoir, but still, uh, I just don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think I don't like memoir. I don't often read memoirs by people who are like current politicians or who will be political candidates. And so I definitely like bring that skepticism to this book. But I also think that it's um, the one of the other articles I read about it talks about how it's going to be a, like calling for reforms and voting rights and that kind of thing. And so I think it's more about that than it is about. Hopefully, it's more about that than it is about her particular journey. Um, but yeah, I totally see what you're saying, and I also am not a huge fan of memoirs by politicians who are currently kind of in office because they're not going to give you an unvarnished story because they need to have their image varnished in a certain way to continue to be elected. And so, yeah, there's a certain level of um, not dishonesty exactly, but like smoothing over that I think like truly good memoirs don't do. I think that's a good way of phrasing it. Great job, Kim. And with that, let's get to our other sponsor for the episode. It is Novel Gazing, Book Riot's new literary fiction podcast. Um, when one of Book Riot's, uh, I think, head editors? I don't know. One of their leaders was posting on Instagram and uh, about novel gazing. And I was so excited and I messaged them and was like, <laughs> oh my gosh, I love that name! Um, anyway, okay, so what is novel gazing? Novel gazing is your destination for all things literary fiction, bringing you news from the world of fiction and recommendations for under-the-radar reads, works in translation, buzzy books, and more. I love buzzy books. Those are fun. Because <laughs> then, you know, you get you have, like, the conversation with people who have also read them or are interested in them. It's just a good, like, icebreaker. Okay. Stay in the know. Expand your TBR and your view of literary fiction. And, of course, have some laughs with hosts Mary Kay McBrayer and Louise Johnson. Novel Gazing is a bi-weekly show available wherever you get your podcasts. Go listen to episode one now. Yay, Novel Gazing. Yay, I'm really excited about that one, too. I think it sounds fun. And yes, I agree. The name is just so, so good. Chef's kiss to that. Very fun. <laughs> All right. So uh, now we will get into our kind of regular segment, which is new books. So that is books that are out recently and coming out soon that we have read and are excited about or in some cases are just really excited about and can't wait to read when they come out on pub date like everyone else. So um, Alice, you're up first. Okay, so my first new book for this episode is The Third Rainbow Girl, The Long Life of a Double Murder in Appalachia by Emma Copley Eisenberg. It's out January 21st from a sh January 21st from Ashette. Um, this book was on a lot of kind of books to watch out for lists in 2020, and um, I was psyched to get into it. It is uh, obviously from the title, The Long Life of a Double Murder. It is a true crime book. Um, the story is... Um, on June 25th, 1980, in Pocahontas County, West Virginia, uh, two women named Vicki Durian, who was 26, and Nancy Santomero, 19, were found murdered in an isolated clearing. Um, they were hitchhiking to this festival known as the Rainbow Gathering, which is kind of like a one of those hippie festivals. It was 1980, so it was sort of like nearing the end of those sorts of gatherings, but this was a, a holdout um, from that time. So they were hitchhiking there. They never arrived. They traveled with a third woman uh, named Liz who lived. So the title of the third Rainbow Girl comes from, right, they're going to the Rainbow Festival, and this is the, the third woman. So for 13 years, no one was prosecuted. And in 1993, a local farmer was convicted, but he was released when a known serial killer and diagnosed schizophrenic 
claimed responsibility. So basically, Emma Copley Eisenberg, she lived in Pocahontas County for like a number of years investigating um, these acts and like sort of looking over and interviewing people. Um, so she talks about basically the history of West Virginia, the events themselves, and sort of just examines all of this and like, the you know, goes into Appalachia. And um, one of the things that this is just a random fact that she throws out there that I thought was like, good in terms of, um, I guess, setting the scene for what what is going on in West Virginia even now. So despite having the second lowest average annual income in the country, West Virginians pay the eighth highest health insurance premiums under the Affordable Care Act. So this is sort of like, they're living in this um, overlooked sort of outsiders came in and like did all this strip mining and just like taking the resources of West Virginia. And then the communities have to deal with all of this, right? And like all of these, like paying too high things, not having access to resources that the people who came in from the outside have abundant access to. So she goes into that. She also obviously goes deep into the story of these murders. And she talks a lot about the victims and what their lives were like. I really like how she takes like little facts about their life and like she looks through their scrapbooks and like quotes like what they wrote in their scrapbooks. So it really, she really makes them three-dimensional people, not just, you know, like, defined by this event in their life. It's really good. Um, again, that is The Third Rainbow Girl, The Long Life of a Double Murder in Appalachia by Emma Copley Eisenberg. That sounds super excellent. Really good pick. Yeah, that was on the list of a – I saw that on a bunch of lists, too, and I was going to try and find it because, yeah, it sounds fascinating and, like, a good – yeah, the stuff you said about the Affordable Care Act in Virginia, that's fascinating. I didn't, or West Virginia, excuse me. I didn't, I did not know that. That's super interesting. So good pick. All right. So my uh, first pick is called uh, The Magical Language of Others by E.J. Coe. I came out January 7th from Tin House, which uh, is a, a small press. Um, before I get started, I guess I want to make sure to mention the kind of a content warning for this book. Um, there's mentions of suicide, there's discussions of eating disorders, and there's some discussion of mental illness that um, I think are um, worth noting uh, in terms of content. But uh, so this book is um, the back jacket calls it a love story in letters from mother to daughter. So um, the premise is that when Ijiko was 15, her parents decided that they were going to uh, return to South Korea for her father's job. He got this very lucrative job offer. If they went to Korea or South Korea, he would he they, they would have a ton of money and they would have this very luxurious life. And so they decided to return for this three year contract um, because they thought it would provide opportunities for their kids. Uh, and so they left um, Ko and her brother in California living together. Her brother was a little bit older, and so he was going to be her guardian. Um, so they were in South Korea for three years, and then. And extended the contract a couple of times. And so it ended up being like seven years that she lived in California without her parents. So um, like being a 15-year-old girl and having your parents leave you even for this huge opportunity is obviously really hard. And so um, she writes about feeling like abandoned and adrift after her parents left, especially feeling adrift and disconnected from her mother. So um, at some point, her mom starts writing letters to her um, in Korean, but sort of in very basic Korean because Kokan actually read Korean at the time. Um, and so she gets these letters but can't really process them fully. Uh, and so she doesn't really come to understand them until many years later when she finds them and then can finally have them translated and really understand what her mom was trying to convey to her during this time through these letters. So um, the book includes translations of some of the letters along with um, her story, her memoir about 
just like growing up without her parents in California and going to college and kind of all of the the pieces of being this this person whose parents left her for a while. And then she um, kind of parallels her story or connects her story to the stories of her mother, her mother's kind of life story, and then uh, both of her grandmothers who uh, in their own times uh, faced abuse, neglect. Um, one of them was um, on an island, the Jeju Island Massacre, and so had this really brutal experience when she was a child. And so it looks like kind of how those traumas and those abuses uh, trickle down through generations and affect how we treat one another and how our families uh, interact with each other. Um, it's also got some really beautiful stuff in it about how language shapes us and how it can shape our perception of ourselves and our others. Ko is a poet, which I think is obvious once you know that, because there's just some really beautiful, perfect sentences in this book that I, I loved very much. Um, so this is Kind of a family saga story too, but it's, it's not 500 pages long. It's actually, I think it's like 250. So it's really kind of easy to read and easy to, to jump through. I read almost all of it while I was waiting at a car dealership for a car appointment. So um, I just thought it was really um, beautiful, but also like has some very tough things that have happened to many of the people in it um, that I think could be hard to read about. But um, I thought it was really lovely. So that is uh, The Magical Language of Others by E.J. Coe. You sort of answered this in your last little sentence there. However, I had a question, which is, would you say that, because you were saying it's like really short, but it has these sort of difficult things. Are they difficult just because those topics are difficult or is it like a tough part of the book to like get through? Um, I think it's just that those topics are difficult and she writes really, um, she writes really candidly about them. Um, and then the, like the things that happen to her in her family, they're they're just hard to read about, not necessarily that they're hard to read, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, it does. That was my question, so that's great. There you go. I will add that to my TBR. Thank you, Kim. Excellent. My next pick is very different from that. It is Bubble in the Sun, the Florida boom of the 1920s and how it brought on the Great Depression by Christopher Knowlton. It comes out January 14th from Simon & Schuster. I really like books like this. I don't know why. I think it's sort of it's like the tale of a city. And I just, it's like nice and you don't like get drilled down too far into like a one person's particular story, um, sort of more of a general history, but of a very particular point in time. So this obviously is the 1920s. What uh, Christopher Knowlton's thesis is, is that the land boom, uh, particularly in Florida and not the stock market, was the true catalyst for the disasters that befell the nation as uh, overvalued housing and property prices everywhere began to collapse in the wake of the what he calls the Florida debacle. So essentially, the 1920s in Florida in particular was this time of incredible excess and immense wealth and then the precipitous collapse of, you know, in 1929 when the stock market crashes. So um, the 1920s in Florida produced the largest human migration in American history. So, you know, in the 19th century, you had all these people going west and claiming land. And in the 20th century, particularly in the 1920s, all of these people heard about this land boom in Florida and millions of people went down to Florida. So they had these new resorts and these grand hotels and these new cities that like suddenly came up from what was essentially just like wetlands and, you know, like you had the Everglades and you had uh, jungles and just not, you know, actual sort of like you didn't have cities at, or at least you had like two. Um, that number is wrong, but it was not a lot. Anyway, 
So this boom spawned a new subdivision civilization and uh, what he calls the most egregious large-scale assault on the environment in the name of, quote, progress. Um, this was also um, Vegas before there was Vegas. They had gambling. Um, prohibition was not enforced in Florida. So all of these sort of like celebrities and gangsters were going down to Florida in the 1920s and just doing whatever. Um, it was a really... Um, let's say bonkers time. So what he talked Christopher Knowlton talks about all of this and then he talks about also the environmentalists who were trying to save everything in particular Marjorie Stoneman Douglas because as all of these people were like grabbing for land more and more of uh, Florida's um, extremely diverse ecosystem which especially if you read in something like the Orchid Thief um, that was being Eat, like just disappearing and so these people were battling against these like land tycoons um if you're interested in this type of again sort of um expansive but also specific <laughs> story then this is great for that again it is bubble in the sun the florida boom of the 1920s and how it brought on the great depression by christopher knowlton that sounds so fascinating oh my gosh it is. I'm really enjoying it. <laughs> and it, yeah, like, and the 20s, too, are such a, like, weird time and just, like, everything that happened ahead of the Depression and how, yeah. Oh, man, that sounds so good. Great pick. And, of course, we are again in the 20s. Indeed we are. Whoa. I know. <laughs> Mind blown. <laughs> Whoa. All right. <laughs> so <laughs> my second pick for new books um, is, I guess, probably another one that I think is maybe one of the more anticipated books of January. Um, that's called Uncanny, Uncanny Valley, a memoir by Anna Weiner. And it comes out January 14th from MCD. Um, and so this is a Silicon Valley memoir um, that I think is um, kind of weird and interesting. And I like it so far. So the book starts out with uh, when she is 25 and she um, has a job at a small publisher in New York City, um, but is feeling kind of, um, she's a millennial, right? So she's got a lot of those things where like high student debt and jobs that don't have a lot of jobs security, but then also don't have a lot of upward mobility and in New York where everything is expensive and just kind of like struggling in that whole ecosystem. And so she um, connects with a uh, technology company in New York that doesn't work out. And so then she um, eventually moves to San Francisco where she starts working for a company that makes the big data software that helps other companies track and use data about customers and potential customers. And so um, she is an outsider both because of her gender and interestingly, because of her age. Um, she repeatedly mentions in the part that I've read so far about feeling just like older than all of these like college kids that are dropping out to start these huge venture capital companies. Um, so she brings that kind of outsider perspective to this um, company in Silicon Valley that she's working for. So there's a lot in it about the people, like who are these really young CEOs of companies that are getting millions or of dollars in venture capital money. Um, like, what are they like? Um, so there's sort of this like sociological look at different kinds of startup people. Um, and also like the kinds of issues that they are sort of not grappling with um, as they're dealing with creating the software and doing things. So there's stuff about privacy and security and responsibility and um, all of those kinds of issues and how they're really not being thought of by these people who are young and have an idea and have a lot of money. I like it so far. One of the things I like is that her focus on particularly working for this big data company and how data in Silicon Valley affects 
everything uh, is interesting and it's different than what I've seen in other memoirs. And I think it also is relevant for a lot of the discussions we're having right now um, about privacy and security and all of that. Um, there's also like the style of it is really kind of odd and I can't decide exactly how I feel about it. So um, one of the blurbs on the back describes it as like Joan Didion at a startup, which is totally accurate. Like she has a very Joan Didion kind of observational vibe to it, but like she never in the book actually names any business. So like she keeps referring to uh, this social network, social network that everyone hates, which is obviously Facebook, but she won't say that it's Facebook. <laughs> and then she, um, writes about like using a room, an online room rental thing. And I don't remember exactly what she calls it, but like it's obviously Airbnb. Um, and I can't figure out why. Like, why that, why that choice is being made to not specifically name any of these businesses. Like, I don't know if it's, it's to like make it seem more timeless or to sort of say that like, yes, it's Facebook, but also like it could be any other kind of social network and that like they all have these problems. And so there's no need to name one because they all do it. Like, I just can't figure it out. I read an article about it because oh, please share. I was trying to figure out for the, Part of it that I've read, I was trying to figure out what companies she was talking about in some cases because um, I could identify a few of them. But uh, I particularly wanted to know where she worked. And so this article I read identified some of them and then it was like she is writing in this sense like you're writing for the future, right? Like So like mm -hmm. future people are not going to necessarily know what these companies are. And it's like – so, but it said also it's it sort of indicated uh, – some of the frustration that uh, you were talking about because it was like she refers to essentially this uh, college that like churns out, you know, this one type of student that like was a shoe in for this. And it, it, the article was like, she might as well have just said Stanford. It doesn't make sense to just talk <laughs> around it. Just say Stanford. So um, the article also was a little frustrated, but overall on board, I think, with the talking around the company thing. Um, my only other comment on that is that the company she works for in New York, I was very excited to hear her talk about because I knew that it was Oyster. And I was like, oh my gosh, she worked for Oyster. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. So I was, and I was such a huge fan of Oyster when it came out. This was like people, everyone, for everyone, anyone who doesn't know, Oyster was basically called Netflix for books. It was very damaging, in fact, to libraries and <laughs> publishers, but we mm -hmm. weren't aware of that kind of thing in 2011. So um, it folded, but uh, I really liked it while it was around. So it was neat seeing the sort of incubator stage of Oyster through her book. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's kind of funny, like, because you're reading it and you're like, oh, I'm pretty sure I know what that business is. Um, but she never names any of it. So you just kind of are like floating along and it feels like you're like kind of on the outside, uh, you know, like when you're having a conversation with someone and you, they, you like want them to gossip with you and be like, no, really, like, who are you talking about? Um, <laughs> yes. But they just sort of like won't. And they're like, oh, no, it's that person over in IT, you know. Um, I don't know. So I'm like, it's very obvious. It's, I, it, I haven't I haven't totally settled on what I think, but it's definitely like a, a feature of the book that I think is an interesting part of the style. So, well, and if anyone is reading it and they're like, I want to know where she eventually works, I the article names it and it's GitHub. Oh, 
which I don't know anything about GitHub because I am not enough into the internet. I go to like four websites. One of them <laughs> is LiveScience.com, which has fun <laughs> articles about science. But anyway, um, yeah, so that's where that's where she works for some of the book. Interesting. Good to know. I will know that going in. All right. So uh, that is what we have for new books this week. So um, there's plenty more out in January, but those are four that we are excited about. So uh, we will switch gears now into our uh, main theme, which uh, we decided this week to do classic Hollywood, uh, in part because the Oscar nominations just came out and the Oscars will be in a few weeks, and uh, in part because it just sounded like fun to do something glitzy and glamoury and historical with old Hollywood. So, um, Alice, I'll let you go first again. Um, yeah, are we starting with our quick mentions? Because I think we should. Yeah, let's do that first. Great. So I've talked about this book twice, so we're just really quickly just going to throw the title out there. Um, it is The Queens of Animation, the untold story of the women who transformed the world of Disney and made cinematic history by Natalia Holt. It's really great. My friend who is obsessed with Disney World just bought it because I kept talking about it <laughs> to her. So she was like, fine, I'll get it. <laughs> um, it's it's really good. It just talks about the women from the beginning of Disney to for Frozen, I believe, and but it, it does spend a lot of time in the 30s and 40s, so kind of the time period that we are talking about. Yes, and my quick mention is another book that I think I've also talked about twice at various times, and that is The Lady from the Black Lagoon, Hollywood Monsters, and the Lost Legacy of Millicent Patrick by Mallory O'Meara. Uh, and this is a biography and exploration of um, Millicent Patrick, who was one of the one of the primary designers of The Creature from the Black Lagoon. She was a an, an actress and a makeup artist and a technical artist in Hollywood and, and in horror films. Uh, and so it's about her life and life legacy, her work in horror films, and then, like, what happened to her after she uh, was kind of forced out of Hollywood because of uh, sexism and things like that. And it is, it's real good. It's real fun. So, uh, Lady from the Black Lagoon, Hollywood Monsters, and Lost Legacy of Millicent Patrick. Um, oh, so I want to preface this section. I know we already started on the section, so it's not really a preface. However, um, I have been so into classic Hollywood since I was... I'm going to say 10, maybe a little bit younger. Um, I used to, my parents, we would get, we didn't have cable, so I would just watch like old movies on PBS at like 10 p.m. or something as a child because I stayed up too late. And um, so I grew up with like Katherine Hepburn and just all of these stars. I was thinking in my book choice uh, when I was at the library and I just was like browsing around and like, what do I want to focus on? I kept thinking about I should do like a specific actress like Joan Crawford or Norma Shearer or Claudette Colbert or Barbara Stanwyck. For some reason, the era of classic Hollywood engenders these biographies that just uh, no one can agree on them being good. Like, so if you look at any review, they're all like three stars with some people being like, this is great. And some people either saying this person clearly loves the person too much and can't say anything bad about them or this person hates them and is wrong. So I, it's really hard to pick a biography from this time. I, this specifically happened with Joan Crawford. I researched three different biographies of her and none of them seemed fair or unbiased and People just can't seem to be that way, except for the people that I am going to talk about with their more broad sort of views of classic Hollywood, which is why I picked broader views. So my first pick is Seduction, 
Sex, Lies, and Stardom in Howard Hughes' Hollywood by Karina Longworth. I've talked about this book before, but I want to mention it again because Karina Longworth, who does the You Must Remember This podcast about classic Hollywood, she wrote this book um, with Howard Hughes as this entry point to talk about all of these actresses from the 1920s through the 1960s. It's so good and so women-focused, despite Howard Hughes's name being in the title. It is, um, she talks from the 1920s with um, his movie, I think it was Wings? And No, that's not right. He didn't do Wings. Anyway, he did all these aviator movies in the 1920s and 30s, and then he did The Outlaw with Jane Russell, which was kind of her big, break and then um it talks about his many relationships but also kind of like star launching projects with these women um and gets into their lives and the movies that are just amazing with them like it'll make you want to put a bunch of movies on your to watch list so listen to her podcast read this book it's genuinely so good if you are into sort of Karina Longworth's very specific sound, then do the book as an audiobook, which is what I did. Um, so again, that is Seduction, Sex, Lies, and Stardom in Howard Hughes's Hollywood by Karina Longworth. Excellent. I'm glad you mentioned the audio because, yeah, I definitely, like, want to read this one, but I always get intimidated by the length of it. Like, it's it's a chunky book. Yeah, yeah, um, and I think I, I like her... I love her voice and her podcast style, so I think audio is maybe the way to go for this one for me. Cool. All right. So my first pick is also, I think, kind of a, an overview-y book, but in coming at it from a different angle. Uh, and it's called uh, The Castle on Sunset, Life, Death, Love, Art, and Scandal at Hollywood Chateau Mormont by Sean Levy. And it came out uh, last May from Doubleday. Uh, and so this is the history of Chateau Marmont, which is a an exclusive long-term hotel that is located right in Hollywood. Um, and it has been the site of many, many Hollywood stories and scandals. And so the book is a history of this hotel, but also kind of a history of Hollywood as it connects to this particular place. So um, it starts out with actually the building of the hotel, um, which was at the, t- at the time it was built, it was in this kind of unincorporated place between two cities. Uh, so it was just like sort of off the beaten path. I think they talked about like it being built on this gravel road, but then it's designed to look like this French castle. So like at the time there was just this castle in the middle of a field, essentially, um, but over time, like that has become developed and it has this very kind of, um, mystical mystique to it, uh, cause it's, um, you know, behind these trees and it's kind of hidden, but also like many famous people go there to kind of hide out or live for periods of time while they're in Hollywood making movies and stuff. So, um, the book talks about like, uh, during the great depression, how they tried to save the hotel and like what had to happen for that. Uh, and then it goes into kind of all of the stories. And so there are lots of stories that either may have happened there or didn't happen there the way that they thought. Uh, and so the book kind of goes into all of those, what we think we know and then what we actually know. So um, a couple of the stories that um, are connected to this hotel um, is that, you know, Jean Harlow supposedly took lovers during her honeymoon while she was there. That is where Nicholas Ray slept with Natalie Wood when she was a teenager, and then they were part of Rebel Without a Cause. Um, their affairs. Um, there's <laughs> Jim Morrison uh, swinging from the balconies, um, and Lindsay Lohan getting kicked out of the hotel after charging uh, fifty thousand dollars in less than two months. 
Uh, so it's uh, kind of the history of this place, but then also these kind of stories that are connected to it over time. So starting with classic Hollywood and then moving into more contemporary things. Um, and so I really like it just like that approach, right, of like taking a particular place and a particular um, kind of mythology of that place and then using it to try and tell stories and connect it to different um, eras and themes and things that are happening. So uh, it's really great. I, I like it a lot. So that is The Castle on Sunset, Life, Death, Love, Art, and Scandal at Hollywood Chateau Marmont by Sean Levy. I remember when that was coming out and I was interested in picking it up and then, you know, I got sort of, uh, I, was, I guess, subsumed under the massive number of new releases coming out last summer. So that's mm-hmm. a good reminder. Thank you, Kim. Um, my other pick for classic Hollywood is Scandals of Classic Hollywood, Sex, Deviance, and Drama from the Golden Age of American Cinema by Anne Helen Peterson. This came out in 2014, and Helen Peterson also wrote Too Fat, Too Slutty, Too Loud, which was recommended by Kim on this podcast at some point in the past. I don't remember when. Was it a while ago? Yeah, I think it probably was. I don't remember for sure. At least it was probably 2018. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, I remember you liking it. So I thought it was interesting Mm -hmm. that she – so this was her, you know, previous to that book. She has a lot of writing online. And um, I think, like, in she's written, you know, about Hollywood, and that's sort of what prompted this book. So she mainly – she takes all of these scandals, many of which are familiar if you're into this era, and then she just gives you some more detail. And it's – they're all broken down in, like, a sort of satisfying anecdotal way, like, meaning, like, they're not that long. Um, But – she does give you some detail that you might not have had before. So some of these things include um, the smear campaign against the original It girl, Clara Bow, um, who was uh, very, very big in the 1920s and then kind of fell off in the 1930s and beyond. Um, the story of Montgomery Clift's rapid rise to fame and um, sort of the, uh, quote, long suicide that followed. Montgomery Clift, uh, if if anyone knows anything about him, it might be that Catherine Hepburn spat in the face of the director of the film suddenly last summer because of his treatment of Montgomery Clift. Montgomery Clift seems like one of those sort of tragic figures who you wanted to protect, and clearly Catherine Hepburn did. Um, it also talks about Fatty Arbuckle, and this story I thought was interesting because what she says is well, she kind of leaves it vague. She's like, we don't actually know what happened, but here are the facts as we know them. If you are more interested, like in getting more uh, information about Fatty Arbuckle and his trial, um, there is a an episode of You Must Remember This actually, where she gets into the details. I feel like she leans more on the side of he did cause the death of Virginia Rappe. Um, this this story is kind of like we don't know. Um, which is true, we don't, but, you know, it's kind of you draw your own conclusions. Um, she also talks in the book about uh, why Mae West was arrested and jailed for indecency charges, and then uh, Rudolph Valentino and his whole thing <laughs> that he had going on, um, which, I don't know, that was an interesting guy. I feel like he had a lot of stuff in the 1920s. And then I don't think she addresses it in the story, but there's also this whole weird thing with Rudolph Valentino and this woman in black who would visit his grave all the time. Anyway, look it up. Um, So the book, again, is Scandals of Classic Hollywood, Sex, Deviance, and Drama from the Golden Age of American Cinema by Anne Helen Peterson. 
It's funny. I'm glad you talked about that one. I actually had that one checked off from the library, too. So I was like, this looks really interesting. <laughs> um, and I read a couple of essays in it, and I really liked them. I thought they were interesting the way that she um, connects kind of the personas that different stars had at the time and how those personas really affected how they were then treated in the media and how their scandals were um, received by people in the public, which I think we still have a lot of today, right? Like people have kind of a persona. And when you push against that persona as a celebrity um, or even like a regular person, like when you push against what people kind of are um, inclined to think about you, it can have consequences that you don't don't really intend, I guess, you know? Oh, yeah, like when she talks about Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks mm-hmm. and, like, how everyone wanted it to be okay that they got a divorce from their spouses to marry each other, so everyone was okay with it, even though it was the 1920s. Yeah, exactly. Like, I thought that was really interesting, so. And even the Fatty Arbuckle story that, like, whether he, whether he was responsible for her death or not, that, like, his persona and his perce- – her people's perceptions of him affected how he was then received regardless of what the facts of the story might have been. So, yeah, I thought it was interesting. Yeah, all right. So my uh, last book is, I think, maybe a little more specific than the ones we've already talked about, but it is true crime, and I feel like we couldn't get out of the podcast without talking about at least one more true crime book. Uh, so that is Tinseltown, Murder, Morphine, and Madness at the Dawn of Hollywood by William J. Mann, which is another 2014 book, actually. And it is, quote, an addictive true tale of ambition, scandal, intrigue, murder, and the creation of the modern film industry, uh, which is amazing. That's so good. I know, right? So good. Um, so this book is set in the 1920s when movies were just starting to really take off. Um, and there's, uh, there, at the time there were a series of tragedies, and the one that this book is particularly about is the murder of William Desmond Taylor, who at the time of his death was president of the Motion Picture Directors Association. Uh, and his murder was unsolved for a really long time, and there were a lot of different speculations about what had happened and how he died, and this book offers another one of those. Um, so the book tries to understand his story, like what happened to him, and tries to also look at the people who were in circles near him when he died and like how they may have been connected to his death. So there were these beautiful, ambitious actresses, a grasping stage mother, uh, his devoted valet, uh, and then, quote, a gang of two-bit thugs, any of whom might have fired the fatal bullet. So it looks at all these people and tries to figure out who might have murdered him. Um, Another person who's really key in the story is a guy named Adolf Zukor, who was the brilliant and ruthless founder of Paramount. So there's stuff in it about movie studios and how the studio system was involved in sort of the creation of um, and personas of stars and of their employees. Um, so I, I've read a little bit of this one, but all of, a lot of the reviews that I have also read of it talk about how it reads very much like fiction, kind of like pulp fiction almost. And so if that is not your particular style for historical nonfiction, then this may not be quite the right book. But if you're looking for something that leans more reads more like fiction, I think this might be a good pick. Um, it's a book with lots of twists and secrets. Um kind of offers multiple potential scenarios for who may have killed um, William Desmond Taylor, but then um, also gets into sort of the time and place of Hollywood at, at this moment and what it was like, but in kind of a Pulp Fiction-y mystery kind of way. So I think it's a, maybe a little bit lighter, more fiction-y take than some of the other stuff we've talked about, but still, still a good read. So that is Tinseltown, Murder, Morphine, and Madness at the Dawn of Hollywood by William J. Mann. I think there was like a deathbed confession for that, although those have been false before, so it might mm-hmm. be wrong. But 
read the book, find out who maybe deathbed confessed. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I do not know the answer to that question. But uh, it is an unsolved murder that may in fact be solved. We'll find out. All right. And so with that, we're going to wrap up the podcast uh, as we usually do every week by talking about the books that we are reading right now at this very moment. Um, and so, like I said before, my reading has been super slow and I haven't gotten a lot. But um, a book that I am hoping to pick up soon uh, is called The Remix, How to Lead and Succeed in the Multi-Generational Workplace by Lindsay Polak. Uh, and so this is a book that is about how our workplaces now have millennials, uh, Generation Z, baby boomers, and Gen X people all trying to work and work together with all these different, um, they're all working at the same time and trying to um, work together. And so um, the book is about sort of what happens when these all these different generations and personalities all come into a workplace and have different attitudes and expectations and um, kind of styles in their approaches. Um, there's a whole section in it. I, I picked it up because um, the place that I work is, is focusing a lot on internal communications. And this book came up on a list uh, where it talked about like the different communication styles of different generations. And I thought that might be kind of an interesting and helpful thing to look at as we're trying to kind of figure that out because um, the place I work definitely has all of these different generations working at it. Um, And so the way that internal communications might work is different depending on who you're talking to. So that was kind of why I picked it up um, because I'm curious just about that. Um, And so I'm hoping it'll have some information about how we can get all these people to kind of uh, receive messages and communicate better and understand each other. So um, we'll see if that turns out to be true when I get to start it. So that is The Remix, How to Lead and Succeed in the Multi-Generational Workplace by Lindsay Polak. My gosh, Kim, I love multi-general workplaces so much. There's so much <laughs> living in a city. It's so easy to just be in a place where everyone is like in their 20s and 30s. And I don't want that. Mm-hmm. I want older people who have more experience and a different outlook. Anyway, <laughs> this is also why I go to the church that I do. Um, so the bo- – oh, speaking of, oh my gosh, a segue. Um, my <laughs> – Kim is laughing because she can see the book title. Um, the next book that I am cur- – well, the next book that I'm currently reading does not make sense. The book that I am currently reading is Godland, a story of faith, loss, and renewal in middle America by Liz Lenz. Oh, my gosh. It's my life story. No, it's not. Okay. So, essentially, Liz Lenz, she – the way that she boils it down kind of near the beginning is she's saying that her – Marriage ended when she voted for Hillary and her husband voted for the current president. And they sort of looked at each other and they were like, maybe we can't make these differences work out. Um, But then she just goes into – how does she actually phrase this? What was happening to faith in the heartland? So she's looking at how they had all these empty churches and like – Iowa and Illinois and Minneapolis, Kim, hey, and um, talks about how we have this sort of deeply divided America, which I feel like we've been saying for decades, but it does feel extraordinarily divided right now. Um, And so she's kind of delving into that while talking about her relationship and how she got to the point of realizing it had to end. It's really short. It's less than 150 pages, and it's from a university press, Indiana University, um, which I always just am happy to read university press books because I feel like they don't get enough love. Um, Again, if you're interested in a memoir about 
family and a marriage, but also sort of this wider look into the culture, particularly in middle America, uh, combined with faith. Then it is Godland, a story of faith, loss, and renewal in middle America. And with that, you can find us on social media. I am at It's Alice Time, and Kim is at Kim the Dork. And if you feel so inclined, please take a minute to rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Uh, this help people. This helps people find us more easily. And while you're there, you can subscribe so that you'll get new episodes the very minute that they come out. And so with that, I am Kim Ukra. And I'm Alice Burton. And we thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Four Real Podcast. <laughs>